we start with federal politics heating up in Canada. What a great panel we've got for you on that. Ed Fast on the line, Conservative MP for Abbotsford. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Ed, thanks for coming on. Morning, Mike. Morning to you. Also on the line is Jennifer O'Connell, Liberal MP for Pickering, Uxbridge in Ontario. Jennifer, thank you for doing this. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you to both of you for being here. Let's start first with Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole calling on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to come up with a plan here to lift COVID-19 restrictions and lockdowns all across Canada. Let's have a listen to O'Toole here. That's why today Canada's Conservatives are calling on the Liberals to table within 20 days a clear data-driven plan to support gradually, safely, and permanently lifting COVID-19 restrictions. Okay, Conservative MP Ed Fast, why do you, is this a priority for the Conservatives right now? Well, because Canadians have been impacted, greatly impacted by the pandemic. There are over 100,000 small businesses that have gone under. There are still over half a million Canadians who are without jobs. The mental health of Canadians has been impacted very significantly. So it's time for the Prime Minister to finally come forward with a clear plan to reopen our economy and give Canadians the hope and confidence for a secure future that they're looking for. Okay, isn't it provincial jurisdiction, though, and provincial health officers make these calls on on restrictions and lockdowns? Well, a lot of these measures fall within the provinces, but the direction comes from the prime minister on three occasions it's the prime minister who called for the provinces to impose restrictions to make sure that canadians were kept safe that their health was not uh, impacted so it's now up to the prime minister to come forward with an economic plan hopefully okay let me go to jennifer o'connell liberal liberal mp and get her thoughts jennifer there are a few points here first I think the Conservatives' plan is completely reckless because we are, there's no question that Canadians' lives have been impacted, that we all want to see restrictions lifted, we all want to see life go back to normal, but we have these variants of concerns um, increasing throughout the country, and we want life to go back to normal, but at a time when it's actually safe to do so. We know that businesses and Canadians are are hurting, but that's why we've been there to support them every step of the way, because the only way to rebuild our economy is to make sure that we actually deal with the health crisis first. So for Conservatives to ignore public health experts and just arbitrarily decide that, you know, 20 days from now is safe, again, is reckless. And it is up to regional, local public health authorities. We trust Dr. Henry. We trust the B.C. government um, in how they're dealing with the pandemic. And we know there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution, and we need that regional ability to make these determinations based on health and science experts and not because politicians wake up one day and say, now's the time. No, we have to ensure that Canadians are safe. Okay, Conservative MP Ed Fast, what do you say to that? Well, what I would say to Jennifer is this. You're wrong uh, accusing us of being reckless because 
our motion in the House of Commons clearly said we were looking for a data-driven plan to support safely, gradually, and then permanently lifting COVID-19 restrictions. Yeah. I mean, it's very clear that Canadians are suffering in, through this pandemic. There's so much financial devastation, mental health devastation, yet the Prime Minister has yet to come up with a plan, an overarching plan, which would, of course, coordinate with the provinces to reopen safely. But there's been nothing coming from the Prime Minister's office. It's time for him now to do it and to base it on data and establish what metrics will be applied to reopen the economy. What triggers are going to be used to determine when the economy is safe to reopen again? Okay, Gen- uh, Liberal MP Jennifer O'Connell, like the, the Conservatives have, have said that the, the reason they want Trudeau to take some leadership on this and, and your government to lay out a plan for reopening and an economic plan is that largely a lot of other countries have done it. I mean, we've seen a Joe Biden White House-led plan, recovery plan. we got a, a UK national plan. How, how do you respond to that, that other countries seem to have a more detailed plan to, to lift restrictions and, and to economically recover compared to Canada? Yeah, absolutely. Well, every step of the way, we have outlined our plan. But of course, um, COVID doesn't stick to, and this virus doesn't stick to all of our best plans, and the variants are a perfect example of that. But you see that we we have released a fall economic statement, which provided more support for provinces and territories and Canadians, small businesses, but the Conservatives are holding it up. So if they're actually serious about sending support uh, to help during the pandemic, then they shouldn't hold up uh, Bill C-14 and let us get these supports out there. We also have a budget uh, coming up in April, so that's going to help outline this. In terms of um, pointing to other countries, I mean, certainly we're always reassessing. We are always looking at the best data and real-world data that's out there. But they, uh, the Conservatives point to the U.S. a lot recently. But let's be honest, every local jurisdiction is reassessing, especially with variants. So we can look to the U.S. and look at their plans, but then look at Miami as a perfect example. Florida, you know, loosened restrictions incredibly quickly. And now we see Miami in a state of emergency. We see places like Paris going into lockdown. So we also have to trust our local health experts um, to be able to assess the situation as it evolves. And we're going to be there to support provinces and territories every step of the way. But like I said at the top, make no mistake, we want life to go back to normal, but we have to do so in safely and with the best, you know, expertise and data. Okay, Ed, Ed Fast. Yeah, this is not about Miami or Paris. This is about having a plan to reopen the economy safely, which will likely be done in stages. But when you look at the United States, when you look at the United Kingdom, when you look at Germany, they've all put in place plans to reopen their economy. And they're all jurisdictions that have tabled budgets, at least one budget, if not two, over the last two years. This Mm. Liberal government in Canada hasn't tabled the budget for over Two years. That's two years over which we had no overarching financial plan for the country, no economic plan that would let Canadians know 
that the people okay. in charge actually know what they're doing. Okay. So it's time. Okay, Jennifer, Jennifer real, real quick, Jennifer, real quickly, if you want to respond, real quick. Yeah, we absolutely have, you know, continued to release economic forecasts and planning to the House of Commons, to Canadians. It's Everything's available online. I understand what the premise of what Mr. Fast is saying, and we don't disagree with safe planning and working with provinces and territories, but at the crux of all of this, that's not actually what their motion asked for, so they're trying to, I think, softening it after the reaction was so bad, but their actual motion asked for in 20 days to have permanent reopening. Well, and I so think it was twenty. No, 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 I think it was twenty days. Twenty Both. days. They wanted a plan within twenty days. Is that correct, That's Ed Fast? Correct. Yeah. For permanent reopening, and I think we have to be responsible and trust okay. our local health experts that are making these determinations. And like I said, I can't stress enough that we have to be flexible to be able to deal with variants of concerns okay. and making sure that Canadians are safe. Thank you to both of you, Ed. I know you're. I know you're desperate to get get back in there, but we're out of time. We're out of time. But I want to thank both of you. I'd love to have you both back. Jennifer O'Connell, Liberal MP there, Pickering Uxbridge in Ontario. Ed Fast, Conservative MP uh, right here in Abbotsford. Thank you to both of them. Tons of reaction on Twitter, email, text messages after the interview we had on Monday with Andrew Weaver, the former BC Green Party leader, just came out swinging against the bike lanes, just slamming the bike lanes, especially the bike lane in Stanley Park going after his former Green Party colleagues who supported that bike lane, called the cycling advocates members of a cult, in his word. Oh, man, I'm still getting reaction to that. Have a listen to this here now. Here's Andrew Weaver. This is kind of counterintuitive, right? Like former Green leader going after bike lanes? Kind of topsy-turvy, but here he is going after, uh, talking about the Stanley Park bike lane. My father, who's 88, is not going to get on a bike. My mother-in-law just had a stroke. She's not going to get on a bike. I mean, it's it's not reasonable to to think everybody is uh, able to do, you know, uh, and, and to take away the opportunities for elderly, for, for those with disabilities or special abilities to actually enjoy Stanley Park or, in our case, to, to get from A to B in Victoria. All right. Andrew Weaver, the former Green Party leader on Monday show. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Steve Wallace, owner of Wallace Driving School, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Steve, thanks for coming on. Hey, good morning, Mike. Okay, Steve, where do you where do you stand on bike lanes as a guy who spends a lot of time behind the wheel you, and teaching young drivers to drive? What about these bike lanes? What do you think? Well, my own uh, view is somewhat schizophrenic, um, but I got to tell you that when people are on their bikes, they're not in their cars. So the more accommodation you can make for people on bikes with bike lanes and those kinds of things that are logical, it makes sense. Uh, but the problem is that when you're in a place like Stanley Park, I mean, people on their bikes don't generally frequent those kinds of vendors that are there. So if you're in a situation where you want people to come to your business, and businesses pay, get this, three to four times the tax rate that the average residential property pays. And to deny them that vehicle vehicle access where people go out for lunch or go to a, a, a vendor uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So you've got two competing entities there. As far as I'm concerned, if bike lanes are done well, 
they work well. They keep they get people out of their cars and and they're healthy. They make a lot of sense. Uh, sometimes they're put in places they shouldn't be. I would never want to deny access for people in their vehicles to Stanley Park. Uh, okay. I would accommodate bike lanes, but not deny people in their cars. Okay. This is a big fight that's raging in Stanley Park. There's a huge fight in Victoria where the local city council is putting in a lot of bike lanes as well. So we got two major cities, two major fights going on over bike lanes and other communities in B.C. having the uh, the same debate. One of the things that Andrew Weaver said to me on the show on Monday was that he said he's not opposed to bike lanes in principle. What he's opposed to is the lack of consensus and dialogue in where this these bike lanes are situated, where they're sited, how they're designed. So that's why he said he, he called the advocates for cycling members of a cult, which is, you know, pretty <laughs> kind of over the top. But he said if you try to if you try to push back and have a debate with them, you can't have a reasonable debate. But I also wonder if it's possible to achieve consensus on these projects because someone someone, no matter where you put them, someone's gonna be upset about it. Aren't they? Well, yeah, I've got a column coming out tomorrow on bikes yeah. <laughs> and bike lanes. Of course, it was written on Sunday. It's going to be published Friday. But the, the problem that you have is it's the weirdest thing that's happened now, Mike, is uh, people are getting their driver's licenses like never before. The uh, uh, person from ICBC phoned me fairly up a level and said, Steve, what's going on with your business? I said, this is crazy. We've never had business like this. We have a 100% increase in people patronizing my driving school. It's the weirdest thing. They're getting their license because they don't feel safe. They don't want to take cabs. They feel it's expensive. They don't want to walk. They don't want to get on their bike, and they don't want to get on a bus in the era of COVID. And what's happening now is because of COVID, for whatever reason, and security and the things I just mentioned, driving schools are just, they're, they're, they're stressed to the max. We got uh, we got courses for instructors. There's whole scenario things going. There used to be 700 driving schools in BC this year. Just with new, there's 800 registered. It's wow. the weirdest thing. We, I never would have predicted that. Okay, that's very interesting. Speaking of COVID, how has that impacted uh, the ICBC licensing system and, and the driver road test? I mean, is it there's still a backlog there? There's still quite a backlog. Uh, they're they're very surprised. They thought they'd have that backlog clear by now. The trouble is more people are getting their driver's license. They're stressed to the max. They've even opened up testing stations on Saturdays. They're doing everything they can. They're opening up different locations for testing stations, some at ICBC claim centers, and they're still behind. So the people who are getting their license are getting it, number one, to be a better job candidate, because that's the first thing an employer looks at at the resume is at the bottom. Do you have a license? It's an intelligence test. You pass 40 out of 50 questions, you got 80%. They don't value the dogwood like they used to because everybody seems to pass. So the employers are looking at it, and anyone who wants a job, not just the jobs, but as I mentioned, the security, they're going for their driver's license. It's the weirdest thing. And as far as bike lanes are concerned, Every time you see a guy on a bike, remember, they're not in a car. Okay, speaking of Steve Wallace, owner of Wallace Driving School, I remember, Steve, you saying to me once we were talking about pedestrians and, and how important it is for drivers to be constantly aware at crosswalks, intersections for pedestrians, because I remember you vividly remember you saying, like, if you ever happen to have the misfortune of hitting someone, it's, it's something that's going to haunt you. Uh, the rest the rest of your life. So, you know, you just wrote an interesting column about pedestrian safety. And you point out that when people get a driver's license, they get training. If they got a motorcycle license, they get training. 
you think maybe there should be more training for pedestrians? Like, do you think pedestrians take too many risks? Well, I think they do. But I, I, if we just did one thing and adopted the Ontario system where you simply raise your arm in a manner to point where you're going to cross, that gets an animation that drivers will react to. They don't react to static things. And so as far as timing goes, simply raise your arm if you want to cross the street. Get eye contact with the driver. That's part of yeah. the problem. As with more, as with bicycles, I mean, if, if you are turning right and a bike hits your vehicle from behind, it's going to be the bike's fault. But if they hit you laterally, or you hit them, I should say laterally it's going to be your fault so as far as fault is concerned a lot of times we do a single tap of a horn uh, which means that you're moving forward a double tap means that you're backing up and a triple tap means something weird is happening so when you're making a right turn at an intersection it might be a good idea just to tap the horn don't blare it so you scare the pedestrian but to tap your horn brings attention to your vehicle and that's one of the safe moves that the, the drivers can actually make how about pedestrians crossing at a signaled intersection with the don't walk flashing symbol um this do is, people yeah, do you find go ahead it's one of the most misunderstood things. When it says don't walk, it means don't walk. Don't start to walk. It doesn't matter how many seconds it has declining or whatever. The law says walk, you begin your walk. If it says don't walk, you're not permitted to begin your cross. You have to be in the crosswalk to proceed. And because most, a lot of pedestrians don't have driver's licenses, uh, most do, but a lot don't. They don't even know that rule. And most of the people that have a license don't know that rule. Don't walk means don't walk. It doesn't matter how many seconds are on the, on the sign declining. Walk is white. I asked a guy one time, I said, it said don't walk. What did you do? He said, well, I ran. <laughs> he says, I should have a run signal there, yeah, right. uh, okay. which is okay. facetious, I might ask. <laughs> what about uh, pedestrians walking at night in in dark clothing? I mean, you know, if it's rainy, visibility is poor. I sometimes pe- see people walking all all in black, sometimes looking down at their phone. Man, well, I'm, looks- I'm glad you brought that up, Mike. I really am. Most people don't know this, and I had to be reminded of it. I I sort of forgot the context. But eight out of ten people, pedestrians that are hit, are hit at night. Eight Mm -hmm. out of ten are hit at night. So as far as drivers are concerned, as far as pedestrians are concerned, that's when you have to have the ultra-sensitivity to people walking on sidewalks and drivers at night. And if I were to tell you 80%, uh, it kind of sh- I, I remember it from an old stat, but I didn't think it was still true. But that kind of shocks you, doesn't it? Like 8 out of yeah, 10 are getting that's hit huge. at night? That's huge. With my guest, Steve Wallace, owner of Wallace Driving School. All right, welcome back to the show. Yesterday, the National Hockey League announced that one of their veteran referees would be banned following a hot mic incident. Our show contributor, John Jang, now has that audio and the story. John. Hey, good morning, Mike. Veteran NHL referee Tim Peel has been banned indefinitely following a hot mic incident on Tuesday night. During the game between the Nashville Predators and Detroit Red Wings, Peel's voice could be heard on the televised broadcast just as the play was stopped. Here is that now infamous moment. It wasn't much, but I wanted to get a penalty against Nashville early in the... The audio ends abruptly as the broadcast cut away into a commercial break, but based on that evidence alone, the NHL acted rather swiftly with the vice president of hockey operations, Colin Campbell, announcing on Wednesday that Peel would no longer be working NHL games, now or in the future. 
It's understood that he hasn't been officially fired, but he was actually set to retire at the end of the season anyway. It seems the league has essentially expedited that process, and Peel has likely worked his final professional game. But was this the right call, or does the NHL get a two-minute minor for interference? Devin Howard is a nine-year certified hockey official working as a linesman for both the OHA and the KIJHL. He joins us now with first-hand experience of what it's like making calls out there on the ice. Hey, Devin, appreciate you giving us some time here today. You bet, John. Thanks for having me. So did the league overreact here when essentially banning Tim Peel, or did they get it right? Was Tim Peel guilty of gross misconduct? I mean, first of all, you have to you have to look at the guy who, who they're laying the hammer down on here. I mean, this isn't a brand new official, right? This is Tim Peel. He's had over 1,400 NHL games. He's 53 years old. He's not a brand new referee. He's been in the NHL's officiating association for over 25 years. He refereed in the 2014 Olympics in Sochi. Like, this isn't a brand new guy. So, I mean, big deal to lay the hammer down and be so, I guess the word would be trigger happy when, uh, when you hear something like this. Obviously, they put out a statement earlier today, I believe, and... To me, the statement was pretty vague. I mean, are you, are you protecting the integrity of the rules? Are you angry that he swore on a hot mic? It's, it's, a, it's a fairly vague statement, in my opinion, and uh, a surprising decision uh, by the NHL, to say the least. Sometimes a penalty is obvious, right? Like a tripping call or a slashing call, hooking. What's it like, though, having to make those discretionary calls? Right. And the biggest thing is obviously following the rules. But as an NHL referee or a referee in any hockey game, it can be an Adam AAA hockey game. It can be anything. You have to set a standard early. And if you make a mistake early in the game and call a penalty and you say, hmm, you know, that might have been a soft call. You have to go for every soft call after that. And the coach is going to expect it. You called a penalty early that maybe you even didn't think was a good call, but now you've set a standard and you have to uphold that standard for the rest of the hockey game. So I'm not sure if maybe Tim Peel thought that he made a bad call at the beginning of the game and that he needed to get back for the other team. He, like, I mean, you talk to any referee that's ever refereed a hockey game, they've made a makeup call in their life. And if they say they haven't, they're, they're completely lying to you. They, it's just something that every hockey referee's done. Would you agree that late game penalties can sometimes add entertainment to the game? Like if your team is down by one late in the third and the referees call a penalty so the team has a chance to tie on the power play, ooh, all of a sudden, that game is so much more intense. Absolutely. And first and foremost, any referee will say, we're not here to, to make for entertainment. We're here to uphold the, the quality of a hockey game. But you're absolutely right. As a fan, a late penalty in a game that could have gone one way or the other is exciting. And it adds to the value of a hockey game and, you know, keeps fans on the edge of their seats. Absolutely. In any hockey game that I've played or I've been watching, at least once a game, the officials have to gather up after a play has been whistled down to discuss what had happened, which player is going to get which penalty, and what team is going to go on the power play. What are those discussions actually like? Because only the officials really know what those conversations are actually about. It, it is all business, John, and we're not, we're not out to, to go after a team or a coach that maybe has given us a hard time throughout the game. You know, I think back to a game I did in junior. I was a linesman for a junior game out in Ontario, and there was a uh, an injured player late in the game. 
and it was a severe, severe boarding penalty, and we ended up calling a match penalty on it. And it was a late game in the season, and, you know, points were on the line, and the referee didn't see it. And as the linesman, we huddled up, and he asked, you know, what did you guys see? And I told him, you know, there was a boarding penalty that was missed, absolutely. And linesmen can only call major penalties. So, you know, it doesn't happen very often, but you get together and you say, hey, what did you see? And basically, I told him, you know, there was a match penalty for boarding, absolutely. And the referees always say, are you 100% sure or are you 99% sure? Because if you're 99% sure, you can't make that call. You have to be 100% sure with every call you make. That's the difference between 99 and 100%. And Devin, before we let you go, do you feel officials get enough respect for the job you do out there? I don't know. It depends person to person whether you think they get the respect they deserve. Some coaches are great with officials. Some aren't so great. But it is a thankless job. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, some one of the teams is going to win the hockey game. The referee never wins the hockey game unless he's making an absolute spectacle of himself. And, you know, it is a thankless job at the end of the day. And uh, it's, a, it's a difficult job because arguably the fastest paced sport in the world and plays happen in a millisecond. And you have to be sure, like I said, you have to be 100% sure that you're making the right call and upholding the standard of the game. He is Devin Howard, a nine-year linesman with the OHA and the KIJHL. Hey, appreciate you giving us some time here today. You bet, John. Good to catch up. All right. Thank you for that, John. Good report there. John Jang joins me now as we continue talking about this NHL referee who's now been banned from refereeing any more games after this hot mic incident, John. So, John, I mean, you're you're a fan, you're a hockey player. Okay, well, like, what do you what do you make of this? Because I think a lot of people are looking at this and saying that a so-called makeup call by a referee, a referee calls a penalty on a team. Maybe they maybe a, a, an earlier penalty was missed, or uh, another the other team got away with the other team got away with something, and he wanted to even things up. That this kind of stuff like happens all the time, right? I mean, it's just kind of an open secret that this kind of stuff happens. So, do you think this guy is like a scapegoat? for something that every referee does just because he was you know he was dumb enough to say it out loud and it got caught in a mic yeah 100 percent. i think only yeah. because he was uh, caught on the hot mic and there's actual evidence that this is happening was uh, he given that suspension and and likely his career is is ended uh, a little bit earlier than what he uh, was planning for with his retirement at the end of the season but it does happen frequently, Mike, and it does happen pretty yeah. much every single game. Anyone who's played hockey, anyone who's seen a game regularly enough, they know this is common practice. Yeah, now we don't know what's in this referee's head here, but if we look back at exactly what he said, so he said it wasn't much, I guess referring mm -hmm. to the incident, it wasn't much, but I wanted to get an, an effing penalty against Nashville early. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty... That's pretty damning right there. I mean, he's caught, right? I mean, he's caught here. And I'm just wondering, like, when they talk about a makeup call, what was the makeup here? Does anybody know? Like, why would he, why would he want to call a penalty against Nashville? Did they get away with something early or earlier? Yeah, I think. 
I think when you don't have the full context in mind, it's hard to just sort of analyze a 10-second audio clip and say, oh, he's guilty or, oh, this is that. Um, from my understanding, there wasn't really a major incident that had happened earlier in the game. So it doesn't right. seem like there was an obvious reason as to why Nashville had to go on the penalty like that. However, we know in incidents in the past, Mike, that referees have long memories and if a player right. for example on Detroit made that referee look bad earlier in the season maybe missing a call or maybe diving to get a call uh, those referees remember these kinds of things and they have um, I, I would say a reason to maybe want to put Nashville uh, you know in a tight spot like that okay now Nashville ended up winning this game correct that's right yeah okay so they ended up winning the game you know, one of the things that's been brought up, though, everyone's sort of sort of rolling their eyes saying, well, you know, this kind of stuff happens all the time. And this guy, this guy just got unfortunately caught, you know, voicing an open secret that we all knew was going on anyway. But I wonder if, let's say Nashville had lost this game and they had lost on a, a power play goal that had been scored mm. against them on that call. And then they end up missing the playoffs by one point. Or something, and you know, and people might look back at this call and say this so-called makeup call might have cost them a playoff run. I mean, there's all kind, there's all kinds of permutations you could talk about <laughs> in some something like this. Oh, absolutely. And if that yeah. ended up happening uh, down the road from uh, from where we are right now in the regular season, I think people would have a, a very fair complaint to be making. And I think that's why the NHL acted so swiftly. Like they told us on Tuesday night, the night of the incident that they would be conducting an investigation. And not even 24 hours yeah. later, they suspended Tim Peel almost indefinitely like this. So well, clearly, they wanted to act quickly and get ahead of the story here a little do you bit. Think, do you think they had any choice, though? I, I mean, you know, gambling on sports is, is a big deal. Mm -hmm. the, the, every league needs to ha make sure there's integrity in the way these games are officiated. And when you got a referee saying, like, I know it wasn't much, but I wanted to get an F and penalty in against this one team. I'm not sure the NHL had much choice. You might be Would right, you? and certainly we've seen in years past, especially if you're a Canucks fan, that officiating can be uh, questionable. I'll put it that way. And sometimes it feels like the game is tilted. Uh, when you look back at the 2011 Stanley Cup Final, for example, and some people still losing sleep over how that uh, whole series was officiated. With that said, I think you're right, Mike. I don't think the NHL had a ton of choice. If you're openly admitting that there really wasn't a reason to call the penalty, but you just wanted to anyway, you don't need the rest of that sentence in order to suspend a guy like that. Okay, here's what I'm going to do right now. Stand by, John, as we take a quick break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk more about this with John Jang. Now, let's open the phone lines on this one. So this is an interesting sort of glimpse behind the curtain here of how refereeing goes on in the National Hockey League, and who knows, maybe in other sports too. The so-called makeup call, a makeup call by a referee. It's been long been suspected that that's the way this thing works, but here you get this referee caught on an open mic, it wasn't much, but I wanted to call a penalty on this other team. What do you think about that? I mean, do you think that's just the way the game is played? This is just normal operating procedure, and what this guy did is what's been going on for years? Do you think he was scapegoated in any way? Do you think the NHL did the right thing in banning this guy, banishing him from the league? Phone me right now. This guy is a veteran referee near the end of his career. Pretty pretty tough way to go out for this guy's career to end on this note, Tim Peel. But you phone me and tell me what you think. Let's open the phone lines on it right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. 
1-800-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. John Jang is with me. This is Mike Smith. Back with your calls. Here we go now with the college admission scandal that rocked American universities in 2019. And this story just continues to be a source of tremendous interest. A brand new documentary on it now is a big hit on Netflix, Operation Varsity Blues, currently trending at number three in Canada on Netflix. And I highly recommend this film to you. I thought it was just great. Let's have a little listen to part of the trailer here for Operation Varsity Blues on Netflix. We're here today to announce charges in the largest college admissions scam ever prosecuted by the Department of Justice. My view of the admissions process is some students getting in on pure merit, but many others getting in due to preferences that skew rich and white. They had every advantage, and yet they still cheated. In America, we love the wealthy and we hate the wealthy. Okay, Operation Varsity Blues on Netflix. I thought that was just terrific. Let's discuss now with my guest, Daniel Golden. He is the author of the book, The Price of Admission, How America's Ruling Class Buys Its Way Into Elite Colleges and Who Gets Left Outside the Gates. Uh, Daniel is the winner of the prestigious Pulitzer Prize for reporting for his groundbreaking investigative work on U.S. college admissions, and he is featured prominently in the Netflix documentary. In fact, you heard his voice there uh, in the trailer. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Dan, thanks a lot for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I I really, really enjoyed uh, the film, and uh, it's certainly been a big success. And I I thought your analysis uh, throughout the documentary was great. Let's go back uh, to the beginning of this particular scandal. You have done some of the groundbreaking work even before this thing broke, but a lot of the film is centered on the so-called mastermind of this scam, right? Rick Singer. Rick Singer, this guy in the center of this who helped these uh, rich families uh, get their kids into these elite colleges. Let's start there, Dan. Can you tell us, who is Rick Singer? Who is this guy? Well, Rick Singer was an independent college counselor, meaning... Uh, families paid him to help get their kids into college, and uh, uh, he, he went beyond the, the normal bounds. And the, in the scam, what he did was uh, uh, he essentially bribed uh, college sports coaches that he knew uh, through with the parents' money so that they would put the kids on the list of recruited athletes. And then, you know, if you're a recruited athlete, you're pretty much guaranteed admission. So Parents would give Rick, you know, half a million dollars or whatever. He'd keep some of it, give the rest to a college tennis or water polo coach, and the coach would put the kid on the recruited athlete list. And and the brilliance of it was that the admissions committee never thought to check if these kids were actually athletes, which they weren't. All they checked were the academic credentials to make sure that, you know, they could could let the kid in uh, into the school. Uh, So uh, it was quite successful for quite a number of years until finally it fell apart. Yeah, and it's an amazing film here on Netflix, and there's a lot of recreation in the documentary, and uh, the very fine actor Matthew Modine uh, plays Rick Singer here in a lot of these recreations, and the, the great thing about it is a lot of the dialogue here is lifted directly off of police wiretaps, and that's one of the things that I thought made it made it so compelling. I mean, the, the wiretap evidence that was collected here by investigators is really, really damning. Your thoughts? 
I agree with you. It was very uh, uh, compelling, the wiretaps, and very candid. Uh, Singer and and many of the parents, uh, uh, you know, said some very entertaining things. Of course, a lot of what Singer said on the wiretaps was lying. He was a salesman who was trying to, uh, you know, induce these parents to give him money. And so he made all kinds of outlandish boasts about uh, his connections and, and so on. But the, yeah. the parents, in a way, are more interesting because they're confiding some of their inmost secrets. One of the parents, uh, you know, she tells Singer that, you know, she has two kids she wants to get into college. And, and she's, you know, one of them, she says, you know, isn't very bright, so she's not worried. That kid won't know about it. But she's worried the other kid will figure it out. And you wonder, how is this parent going to explain to the child she said wasn't very bright that uh, yeah. how, how is that family ever going to repair itself when some of these uh uh, you know, converse, uh, some of these conversations surface. Right. It's interesting how this uh, this scam worked that he, Rick Singer, this guy Rick Singer called it the side door, the side door, because going in the front door into an elite college in the States is like getting there on your own. You're, you're smart. You're, you're, you get into the school without help. The back door, uh, I guess, is when you have very rich parents who would make a, a big donation to a college and maybe their kid would get into school as a result. I know you've done a lot of work on that. And I, I think, I know you mentioned um, in the documentary, you mentioned Jared Kushner, uh, the, the uh, husband, of course, of Ivanka Trump. Didn't his dad make a big, big donation to Harvard? And then he got into Harvard. That's right. His dad was a very, uh, it was, is a very wealthy real estate developer who uh, gave Harvard around two and a half million dollars, uh, at the time, uh, Jared was applying, and uh, Jared uh, then got in, even though he yeah. wasn't the top student from his class. He was he was a bright kid, but he didn't pay a lot of attention to his studies, and he wasn't in a lot of the highest level, uh, toughest classes. So that's yeah, that's a classic example of the back what what would be called the back door, where somebody gives uh, uh, you know a lot of money, uh, probably more than Jared Kush's father had to give. That was some time ago, and and the, the child gets in now. The difference is that that's not illegal because you're giving it to the university's endowment, essentially. You're not bribing a particular person. In this right. uh, Singer's case, it was straight-out crime because you're you know, handing a bribe to an individual, a coach. Right, but, right. Morally, they aren't that different. Legally, they're a lot different. Yeah, legal, yeah, for sure. And this is what Rick Singer called his side-door way into the schools, which is like, paying bribes to university officials. And then we just had these extraordinary situations where uh, you would have people, these ringers who would be brought in to take SAT tests for kids to, to get to improve their scores. And then these fake athletes. I mean, this is the most extraordinary thing. People would, these kids would get into these elite colleges as, as members of a rowing team or, a, or an equestrian team or something. And they've got, they're not athletes at all. I mean, how, how did they manage to pull that off? Well, uh, yeah, they would they would get in that way. What, Singer would sometimes Photoshop, you know, fake photos of the uh, uh, students, you know, pretending to be athletes, uh, you know, in the pool playing water polo or on a uh, you know rowing machine. And the reason that, that this worked was that you know in colleges, coaches recruit more athletes for the team than they actually need to play. So in college wow. tennis, maybe you only need eight or nine tennis players or something, but uh, they might have 15 on the team. So, you know, the last few don't necessarily play at all. And so, uh, you know, the coach could just essentially recruit those kids. And 
you know, often they, they weren't even on the roster at all. They just never yeah. showed up and it was all understood. But, but the, the benefit is, you know, they can recruit more kids and get more admission slots than they actually need to, uh, to field a team. Yeah. So that, and, and again, it's kind of a riff on the old back door. And that what used to happen sometimes is, uh, uh, you know, make a big gift to the university and then your kid gets, you know, to be the last kid on the bench for the, uh, the Duke basketball team or something, and <laughs> even though they're not really good enough to play for the team. And in this case, the money again went to the coach and the right. coach benefited from the fact that you could admit a lot more athletes than actually you need. Yeah, it's just extraordinary. Over 50 people have been charged in this uh, scandal. Maybe the most uh, notorious example of this sort of fake athlete thing uh, outlined in the film was uh, Olivia Jade, who's a, a YouTube influencer, the daughter of actress Lori Loughlin, who got into USC as, as a rower, and it didn't appear that she had any experience rowing. My guest is Daniel Golden. His book is The Price of Admission, How America's Ruling Class Buys Its Way Into Elite Colleges. Uh, Daniel's a winner of the Pulitzer Prize. He's featured prominently in the new Netflix documentary, Operation Varsity Blues. Okay, Daniel, I love the film. I thought it was terrific, and especially the insight into this so-called mastermind here, Rick Singer. Um, why do you think this guy, I mean, this guy was a former high school basketball coach who somehow was able to insinuate himself into the lives of these, you know, uber-rich families. How do you think he pulled that off? Well, he was a uh, great salesman. You know, he had the gift yeah. of the gab. He was charming. He was polished. Um, now, and he, all his life, he basically had lied and exaggerated and pulled it off. So, you know, if you go back and look at the media guide from when he was coaching basketball at Sacramento State long before the scam, he was, you know, saying that he'd been an academic All-American and an MVP as a player, all, all these things which weren't true. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's just one of those kind of lifelong uh, con men. And uh, who, who was at ease with, uh, you know, throwing a lot of bull around and uh, moving in higher circles and maybe was justified by his actual accomplishments. Yeah, and you see, he got away with it for a long time before he was caught, and then more than 50 people have been charged in this uh, operation. Uh, we got a local connection here, local BC, uh, Vancouver businessman David Sidhu uh, was one of those caught up in this thing. He pleaded guilty in a U.S. court, sentenced to three months in jail for his part in it, and we've it's just been an extraordinary uh, story, Daniel. When you take a look at it, one of the things that you said in the documentary that really struck me was, you know, you seem to, I think you place most, more of the blame on this for, on the colleges more more than the parents or the kids who got caught up in this thing. Maybe it's the fault of the colleges, but your thoughts? Yeah, I, that, that's what I feel. But obviously the parents were brazen and they were throwing their money around in, a, in an unpleasant way. And, uh, you know, they, they deserve the penalties they got. But, you know, the colleges have created this system whereby in the top American schools, they only accept a tiny fraction of their applicants. And that yeah. breeds desperation. You know, so, so parents are... They're desperate. The colleges, it doesn't happen by accident. I mean, they go out and market and they encourage people to apply and then they turn them down. And they also have made a system where wealth has been influencing admissions for a long time through the, the back door we, we discussed, the big gifts to endowment. So this combination of, of money and having essentially what's a scarce commodity creates an atmosphere where uh, rich parents can be sucked in. 
Yeah, when this story broke, were, were you shocked at all by how brazen this was? Because you had done a lot of the groundbreaking work on this thing, and you won the Pulitzer Prize, and you wrote that great book on this before this scandal broke. And when this thing broke, and you, we saw how just how brazen it is and how widespread it was, did that surprise you in any way? Yeah, I was surprised. I was surprised that, you know, these, these coaches would, would take these uh, bribes at yeah. such a scale. Now, when you think about it, I mean, things had gotten even worse since I wrote my book, right? The, the, the colleges got even more exclusive, like, like University of Southern California, you know, in 1995, maybe it took three fourths of its applicants. But by the time of, you know, you know, a couple of years ago or now, they're taking like 12, 13% of their applicants. So, you know, and that was one of the, the major colleges that Singer got a lot of kids into through this system. Yeah. So things have just gotten worse and worse and made, you know, it just needed uh, you know, a manipulative, uh, unprincipled guy to set it off, and that's what Singer was. Yeah. Why do you think that these college coaches and these athletic directors and these admission officials, why do you think they did this? I mean, why would they... Why would they risk their reputations and, and the great careers they had going to do that? I mean, is it just pure greed? Well, that's a really good question. We haven't heard from a lot of the, the, the coaches here, but I yeah. think it's partly a combination of most of these coaches were in niche sports. You know, they mostly weren't, uh, you know, football and basketball coaches. So those coaches in football and basketball get paid a lot of money. But, you know, the, the sailing coach or the fencing coach, they may not make all that much money, so uh, so a bribe uh, is uh, they they need that money more than a big sports type coach would. And also, I think there's a lot of pressure to win, as we know in in, in college sports. And you need they, they use that money not just for their own uh, uh, income, but to uh, improve their facilities, uh, improve their uh, recruit. You know the kinds of things that would appeal to recruits. So, so those are probably a factor. But yeah. in the end, I think you know it is a lot of greed. But but we're talking relatively low-paid coaches who, and also uh, relative facilities that maybe needed money, too. Yeah, no, that's really interesting about those so-called niche sports or these smaller varsity sports. And, and Rick Singer, the mastermind here, seemed to target those sports. It wasn't like a lot of uh, football or basketball, it seemed, that he was doing, but he would do, like, rowing or sailing or fencing or water polo, these smaller sports. And do you think he, he seems like a bit of an evil genius, you know, the way he kind of figured this out and targeted these smaller sports. And maybe he felt that it obviously worked for him, right? Yeah. I mean, cause those sports are lower profile. I mean, yeah. if he was trying, if he was trying to get somebody into USC by saying, you know, this kid's going to be the next quarterback in your football team, I think yeah, yeah, somebody yeah. might've noticed, you know? <laughs> right. So uh, it's easier to say, Oh, I think this, this, this kid, uh, you know, they played water polo in Italy and they're, they're, uh, uh, you know, they can be on the water polo team. The people on the admissions committee don't know a lot about high school water polo. Right. So uh, it, that was a smart move. There were a couple football players. They were mostly field goal kickers. Be, probably be, that's what he portrayed them as. I mean, they really weren't kickers. But but I guess because a field goal kicker is kind of normal size. You know, if he was trying to tell them this kid's a recruited uh, defensive tackle, you know, the kid yeah. would have to be six four and 300 pounds. So if it was just a normal-sized kid, better to sell him as a field goal kicker. Okay, Dan, we just got 30 seconds left here. Congratulations on everything you've achieved here on, on this story, and I thought your contribution to the documentary w was great. Like, where do you think this story goes from here? Because Rick Singer is still not, like, he's been convicted, right, but he hasn't been sentenced. Is that correct? That's right. I guess they're yeah. waiting till everything, um, you know, plays out. I mean, yeah. I guess where it goes, we'll have to see. I mean, there hasn't been any fundamental change to the system. It's still, 
you know, you know, can be corroded by, by wealth and it's still kind of an unfair game. And, uh, you know, probably the specific scam that he perpetrated, that loophole will be closed, but some, some new Rick Singer is going to find a new loophole someday. No question. Thank you for coming on the show today. It was great to have you here. Great having, great being on. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. Daniel Golden there. His book is the price of admission. How America's ruling class buys its way into elite colleges. Check out that Netflix documentary. I thought it was excellent. Operation Varsity Blues, uh, trending in the top 10 in Netflix in Canada right now. And Daniel's very prominently featured uh, in that documentary. The looming release of a report on UFOs set to be released by the U.S. Pentagon now, this is a hotly anticipated report, and I'll tell you what, this got kicked up a notch the, a couple of days ago when the former director of national intelligence and the former Donald Trump administration talked about it. We're going to play you that clip here in a moment. Very pleased to welcome my guest, Dave Scott. He is the creator and host of Canada's Spaced Out radio program. Very pleased to welcome him. How you doing, Dave? Much for having me on to talk about this fabulous subject that very much does not get a lot of publicity well i think it's very interesting and i, I got to admit i didn't know about this pentagon report until i heard these comments from john ratcliffe now let me play a little bit of this here for you dave this is the former director of national intelligence under former president donald trump one of the top intelligence officials in the previous government and here he is talking about this looming ufo report set to be released by the pentagon he's in conversation here with fox news have a listen frankly there are a lot more sightings than have been made public some of those have been declassified when we talk about sightings we're talking about objects that have been seen by navy or air force pilots or have been picked up by satellite imagery that, um, uh, frankly, um, engage in actions that are difficult to explain, that um, movements that, uh, that are hard to replicate, that we don't have the technology for, or traveling at speeds that you know, exceed the sound barrier without a, a sonic boom. So, in short, um, things that we are observing that are difficult to explain. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's actually quite a few of those, and I think that that information is being gathered and will, will be put out um, in a way that the American people can see. We always, when we, when we see these things, Maria, we always look for a, a, a plausible explanation. You know, weather can c- cause disturbances, visual disturbances. Sometimes we wonder whether or not our adversaries have technologies um, that are a little bit further down the road than we thought or that we realized. But there are instances where we don't have good explanations for some of the things that we've seen. Wow. Wow. John Ratcliffe there, former director of national intelligence in the U.S. government, talking about this looming report on UFOs. Dave, when he said this, man, this, these comments got a lot of attention. What did you think of that? Uh, it was incredible that he came out and said that, because here's the thing. What we have to realize is even though President Donald Trump has been out of office since January 20th, he still has a lot of pull within the political community. And for Radcliffe to come out and say this as a Republican during a Democratic president now with Joe Biden in office, he had to get permission from President Trump. What we do know is that all presidents, vice presidents, are read into this topic in the United States. For this to come out, it would have to pass security clearance 
And according to Ratcliffe, he even went on to say in that interview that at the time when he was in office, he didn't have the ability to make this announcement because the information was still considered classified. But the way it is starting to come out, and with this report that is due out on June 1st, which was part of the of the big $1.3 trillion COVID relief bill that was introduced as their budget before Trump left office, the UFO package was in there. They established a force called the UAP Task Force in order to identify what is happening with these unidentified aerial phenomena. There is a report that is supposed to be released on July 1st. We're 91, or pardon me, June 1st. We are 91 days away from that happening. And there are many speculating within the government that we could hear something even bigger come within the next 45 to 60 days on this topic. Wow, I mean, that's incredible. I mean, he certainly has uh, jacked up the interest in this report coming in June from the from the U.S. Pentagon. And you heard him say there, Dave, some from really interesting things. He said that there, there are videos, there have been observances of flying objects that he said are difficult to explain, movements that are hard to replicate, objects moving at faster than the speed of sound without a sonic boom. He says this is difficult to explain. What, what did you think of those comments when he said that? I think he's being very careful, Mike, because he can't give up too much national security, but they know there's a real problem. It was also released yesterday that in 2019, a bunch of Navy frigates and destroyers just off the coast of California were having troubles with these so-called drones that look like this Tic Tac. So if you imagine the Tic Tac candy, that's the shape that they were. And in fact, one of these tic-tac type of drones that they're calling it was actually hovering over the front bow of one of these military ships. They are being invaded right now, if we could use that term loosely, during exercises. But here's the thing that we also have to look at, Mike. They're only talking about the instances that are happening in military areas, whether it's training areas, whether it's at military installations. They are not talking about anything that the public may see. People who have claimed to see black triangles or flying saucers, you know, hovering over their house or even in Vancouver along the North Shore Mountains. They're not talking about that. This has become a real pain in the butt for the U.S. military from the sources that I have talked to regarding this. They want to know and see if it's the Russians. They want to know if it's the Chinese, the two obvious adversaries of the United States, but they are also leaning very carefully that these crafts that are being seen, they don't know where they're from. And if they're not from this yeah. planet, they got to be from elsewhere. Yeah, and you heard John Ratcliffe there, the former director of national intelligence in the U.S. government, uh, refer to that, saying, like, sometimes we wonder if our adversaries, our enemies, have developed technologies that we don't know about. So he certainly has increase the interest in this looming report set to be released on ufos by the u.s pentagon speaking to dave scott he is the creator and host of canada's spaced out radio dave let me play another clip here for you this is u.s senator marco rubio and he was also asked about this looming report on ufos and here's what senator marco rubio had to say for me, the whole thing was this, and that's why we put that language in there. And that's, people think about space aliens. For me, is there's stuff flying over military installations, and no one knows what it is, and it isn't ours. So for me, that's logical. You want to know what it is, I and mean, it's common sense, right? If stuff's flying over the top of your most sensitive installations, 
and it's not ours and no one knows whose it is, you should find out what it is and tell us. Okay, there's stuff flying over U.S. military installations, and we don't know what it is. Senator Marco Rubio. Dave, your thoughts? 1960s, Michael, where there in North Dakota, there was allegedly UFOs flying over nuclear missile silos, turning on and off the missiles, arming them, preparing them for launch, and then all of a sudden shutting them down. This was made very public recently on television on a show called Unidentified and that was run by a gentleman named Luis Elizondo who used to run the UFO program at the Pentagon from 2007 up until 2017 when he left office. Now, this is something they're taking very seriously because whatever is up there using its very advanced technology to flirt with the United States military, they want to know about it. Let's face it, in this military-industrial complex that we live in, we know that technology is king. And the United States, if they're not the ones with the biggest and best toys, they want to know who has the toys out there so they can get their hands on them. If we are being visited by any type of society from outside of this planet that has the technology not only to get here, but to play with our own technology, that could be considered a military threat, a national threat, and a world threat. This is why the U.S. government is throwing money at this. We're talking millions of dollars because they want to know who is invading American airspace and not only that, the world's airspace. Well, okay, and I think you put your finger on something that, you know, maybe people listening to this might go, what kind of wacko stuff is this, you know, UFOs? Like, look, this is a report that's coming from the Pentagon. This is the former director of national intelligence saying that there's stuff that they can't explain and they're going to report on it. This is a very prominent U.S. senator here, Marco Rubio, talking about unidentified flying objects buzzing U.S. military installations. So, you know, the fact is this report is going to come out, and we'll see what's what's in it. We just got a minute left here, Dave, but when this thing comes out, like, I mean, you move in these circles. This is stuff you talk about all every night on your show. Like, how much anticipation is there now for this report? We got a minute here. Well, I'm going to say this. The people in the UFO field are expecting a big disappointment, like getting a T-shirt from Santa Claus. That's the way we're all expecting it to happen. The U.S. government cannot give up its secrets. They don't know what's happening, and even if they do know what's happening, the big question is, are the people of the United States and basically of the planet ready to learn that there may be other civilizations coming here? The consensus is, no, they are not. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. uh, Everyone's going to be interested to see this report when it comes out, as I'm sure you will, Dave. So thanks a lot for coming on today to talk about it. Take care, Michael. Thank you for the time. You bet. Thanks a lot. Dave Scott there. Dave is the creator and host of Canada's Spaced Out Radio, uh, talking about this looming report set to be released by the U.S. Pentagon into UFOs. That report set to be released in June. And the comments of the former director of national intelligence certainly ratcheted up interest in that.